Last week, we ended with all evil being thrown into the lake of fire. And uh, today we pick up from there. Before we pick up from there, where you're seated, if you could scoot to the center. We have people still trying to find seats. That means this is your chance, single dudes. If there's a single gal right near you, you can go right beside her now. This is your best chance. Um, would you do that? I know it's, uh, it makes room easier for ushers to seat people. So if you'll move to the center and leave the aisles open, um, it makes it easier for the next person coming in. Last week, we took a look at the, the end, and we've been referring to the end as the eternal state. And up to that point, we saw the, the rapture, we saw the seven years of tribulation, we saw the millennial reign, we saw the end to uh, Satan and thrown into the lake of fire. And then we've been talking about this concept, this eternal thing called eternal state, this place where we will end up. Some end up for eternity in the lake of fire burning forever and ever. Hades and, and hell is thrown to lake of fire. So there's eternity in hell. Bible says for those of us who are believers, there's a place called the new heaven and the new earth. And so we're going to address that today. We're going to look at some of the ramifications, the blessings of this new heaven and this new earth and, and how we as Christ followers get to be part of this and spend eternity with our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an awesome opportunity for us to look ahead. Yet at the same time, it's an awesome responsibility to us for us to live until we get there falling hard after Jesus Christ. Most of us, most of us, not all of us, most of us at some point in our lives have made assumptions about this new heaven and this new earth. We have made assumptions based upon a variety of sources. Many of us who have a church background for many years, we picture heaven and we make assumptions about heaven based on the hymns that we've sung. And so we have these hymns that are in our mind and we belt them out and beautiful hymns. And a lot of our theology comes from hymns. And not all the theology, I would say, is correct. Majority is. Yet most of our assumptions are made of heaven based upon hymns, based upon information that's been passed down. And a lot of it's kind of fuzzy. We, we picture these disembodied spirits kind of floating around and, and spending all of our time worshiping God. Now, granted, we will be on our faces. We will be in awe of the living creator God that we've served, that has walked us through this life, that's given us salvation. And we will spend majority of our time doing everything, worshiping him, not just in song, not just in praise, but many other ways. Yet there's this picture in the Bible of what we will do. My hope today is somehow you'll walk out of here and think, wow, I can't wait. Yet while I can't wait, I got responsibility. There's, there's this thing called the Christian walk. There's this responsibility once I follow Christ so that I can be rewarded for his glory, so that I can be compensated with the way I lived here for his glory, so that he gets greater glory. Not just sit here and say, well, I hope the rapture occurs and I'm just holding on. No, to finish and begin and to live our lives out in a strong fervent way for Jesus Christ so that when we do see him face to face, he'll say, well done. 
Well, let's read about this place that we're going to. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. If you need a Bible, hold your hands up. Our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Let's read verses 1 through 5. And I want you carefully to look at the prepositions, the whiffs that are there the froms that are there, because they'll give you an indication of this new heaven and this new earth and help us to clear up some of the fuzziness in our mind about what is to come. Stand with me and we'll read Revelation chapter 21, verses one through five. Let's read this out loud together. Ready, read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more pain or death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You may have a seat. There is this picture that we're given here of God coming to be with us. There's this picture of heaven coming down to earth, setting up its kingdom. There, you look clearly at the words. It says it's coming from to go to, to be with. And so there's this picture of this new heaven coming down and dwelling on the new earth. There is where the people of God are residing on the new earth because God has set up his kingdom, which is now set up in the heaven, as we would say, the intermediate heaven. So at the end, future time, after evil has been passed away, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. No more sin, no more order, no more pain, no more warning. It says, then the new heaven comes down, God comes down and sets it up on the new earth. Clearly, that it's coming from, going to, spending time with. And I'm going to unfold what that is. But before we do that, I want to break down probably some assumptions that we've probably have gathered through the years regarding heaven. And I want to say probably at some point, and maybe today, you walked in with assumptions about heaven, things we assume about to be true regarding heaven and things that are true because the Bible records them as true, true things about heaven. And so I'm going to break down some of those myths, and then I want to help us unpack what the Bible has to say about this incredible time, this incredible union of the bride, us, meeting the groom, spending eternity. We often think about heaven with this. We don't think that it is an earth. So we think non-earth. Immediately, we make this assumption that earth won't be part of this new heaven. The Bible, however, says there will be a new earth. 
So just wrap your mind around that first. This place is going to be a new earth. Now, quickly, let me just, this morning when I walked in to get some shoes, I went into our mudroom, walked in, there's a bunch of shoes. There's Josh, Hannah, Isaiah, and Ann, and, and, and my shoes are there also. Walked in, and I noticed that there was a pair of old running shoes of mine. They were there, and they have a lot of miles on them. They're shoes. Close to them were another pair of running shoes. They were new shoes. Both were shoes. Both had laces. Both had tread on the bottoms. One was worn a little more because it was old shoes, new shoes. But if you would put them side by side, they're both shoes. They look like shoes. They are shoes. They have the characteristics of shoes. They have the shape of shoes. This tells us that there's going to be a new earth. The old earth has passed away, but a new earth will come. Now, you must wrap your mind around this. A new earth will have similar characteristics. It'll have similar attributes. It'll have similar things to the old earth. Generally speaking, when we think of going to heaven, we are remiss that we're going to be on a new earth. That's going to be important as we look at it today in Scripture. Another assumption that we make is that somehow this, this new heaven or this heaven we go to has disembodied spirits or people. It's like we picture kind of like floating around, just like there's like spooky, maybe Casper the friendly ghost. And it's just we have these pictures of, of what heaven is. Yet the Bible tells us that there will be resurrected bodies. There will be bodies in this new heaven and new. We will have recognizable bodies. We will be able to look and say, we know him. I know you. I recognize you. Many other assumptions we make. We make assumptions that there can't be time, no time or space in heaven. That somehow we're, we don't have clocks, that we don't have seasons, that we don't have months, that we don't have things that are, that are cycles that take place. Yet I'm going to show you that the new heaven and new earth, there is time and space. And I'll show you why I believe that's true. There's many other things. We, we picture that somehow there will be no learning, no learning or discovery, no learning or discovery of new things. Yet, I'm going to show you that there will be learning, will be learning, and continual learning. I'll show you why I believe that's true. Some of us think that somehow when we, we are, have these resurrected bodies that, you know, we'll, we'll know everything. I'm going to show you why that's not the case. And I'm going to show you why I believe from Scripture that we'll continue to learn, that you'll continue to improve, that you'll continue to get better at whatever your skill, ability, craft, or talent is. I'll show you why I believe that's true. There are many other assumptions. There's also this assumption that can be made. It's like, it seems boring. That somehow, if all we're going to do all day long is like float around with the angels, like what are our responsibilities? Won't we get tired of that? I'm going to show you where it won't be boring, but it will be fascinating experience for the rest of eternity. There are many others. There are many other principles that we can make assumptions to. Yet, if you were honest with yourself, you've probably at some point wrestled with one of those. And maybe even today, you're like, well, that's what I believe. I believe that to be true. We're going to unpack 
those and many other assumptions that are made regarding heaven and the new heaven and the new earth. All that to say this, the way you live now will directly affect what takes place later. Now, let me give you another picture here. This passage, Revelation chapter 21, gives us this picture. And I want you to see this so that you can help remember this. I'm a visual learner. And so for me, when I see something, it helps me. There's this picture from Revelation that says this, that somehow this heaven is coming down to this earth. There's this picture, and we'll look at it again. We'll just draw a picture of an earth. I know it's not very pretty, but you get the picture. This is, and it says that Jesus is coming down. He's setting up, bringing heaven down to earth. He's setting up his kingdom right here. Jesus rules here. And it says that he will dwell with us. So picture if you can, this this this. This picture of heaven where God and all his infinite beings and his angelic beings that are there coming down from this intermediate heaven, setting up on this new earth so that he can dwell with us. In fact, look again, Revelation chapter 21. You got to wrap your mind around this. will help you see the responsibilities. Look back again at Revelation 21. Then he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. By the way, it doesn't say rivers. It says sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem. What's his next two words? Coming down out of heaven from where? Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now, what's the next word? Among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So there's this picture, heaven coming down, new heaven coming down, God setting up this role, this kingship on this new earth with us. Very important. Prior to all this, though, Before we get to heaven, we as Christ followers are judged. We're judged according to the good works, good deeds that we've done. Sometimes we lose sight of the responsibility that we bear as Christ followers. I will say it this way. Salvation costs us nothing. Following him should cost us everything. Salvation costs us nothing. It's free. It's by grace through faith that you're saved. However, following him should cost us everything. And the way we live out our lives will directly impact us living in this new heaven and in this new earth and the responsibilities, privileges, power, and position that we have. 2 Corinthians 5.10 kind of sets the tone. Keep your finger here in Revelation and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. This is an important verse for us who call ourselves Christ followers. In fact, this would be a great verse for you to underline in your Bible or to mark in your iPad or your iPhone or whatever mobile device you're using. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 says this. Paul wrote this. For we must all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there's a Greek word called bimatos. If you were looking at this in original, that's where you get the word bima seat. Bimatos is judgment seat of God. And so that's where you get the word we say, hey, you'll meet at the bima seat. So it says that all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is what? Do us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. When you and I pass or when the rapture occurs, we are judged before Christ at the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, the bema pass. We stand before Jesus as Christ followers. And every good deed that we think we've done, every good work that we think we've done, goes before Christ, literally. And it's judged by fire. And whatever is left over, where the motives and intents have been godly, are rewarded and compensated. So we will be judged. We won't be judged for our sins, only Non-believers, those who reject Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment, will be judged for our good deeds. I personally have mixed feelings. I think all of us should about this judgment. All the years of my life and your life, post-salvation, the point when you came to Christ, will flash in front of you at this bemacy. Everything that you think you've ever done for good will pass before, and God will test him by a fire to see if they're worthy of bringing glory to him. So in that moment, whatever is left is how we're rewarded and how we're compensated for this new heaven and this new earth. We will be given rewards according to the way we've lived on earth. We'll have the chance to hear, well done, thou faithful servant. Some of the rewards are listed in Matthew chapter 25. Quickly turn to Matthew chapter 25. Here's kind of what takes place and how God does it on earth. He'll do it in heaven. We are responsible for what skill, ability, talent, and gift that's been given to us. Turn to Matthew chapter 25 and look at verse 14. Jesus said these words. Again, it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servant and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave how many bags of gold? To another, he gave how many bags? To another, he gave what? Each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and and hid the master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold? See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of how many things? Many. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained how many more? Two. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. I will put you in charge of many things. 
Verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. The master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has, has, whoever has will be given more and they will have it in abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside in darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's this principle that God has set up on earth. You and I have skills, talents, abilities. You could be carpenters, you could be painters, you could be artists, you could be welders, you could be a homemaker, you could be a mechanic, name it. You could be a musician, you could be an athlete, you name what your skill and ability is. God gifts us with abilities. He wants us in turn to invest those abilities for the kingdom, to use them to duplicate, to multiply, so that he gets greater glory. And we see it here. To the one, he was given five, he multiplied it to five more. To the one that was given two, he doubled it also. And God said, well done, that good and faithful servant. To the one who had one gift, hid it because he was afraid, didn't use it. Not only didn't he use it, but God went back, literally, if you don't use your gift, you lose your gift. Took it away from him. And so there's this picture on earth when we live that the way we live our lives, God directly rewards us and compensates us for that. So when we stand before God one day, heaven offers more than comfort, it offers compensation. Now wrap your mind around that for a second. Short and sweet, here's what that means. You have skills, you have abilities, you have talents, and they're diverse. Yours is different than mine, and maybe we have some similar ones. If we don't put them in use for the kingdom, for the glory of Jesus Christ, and multiply them so that others can find Jesus and be encouraged with Jesus, then literally it says that we won't be rewarded in heaven. We won't be compensated for it. The case is also true. If you don't use your gift, talent, skill, or ability, he will remove it from you. I have watched that happen in the 51 years I've been alive. I have seen people who had an unusual ability or skill or gift, and I've watched them slowly stop using that gift to get to the point where they don't even have a desire or they don't even use it anymore. I often wonder in that moment, did God just remove that gift from them because they refused to use it and pass that gift and talent on to someone else? When we stand before God one day at the Bema seat, Bema Tas, judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, everything that we've ever done will be tested, will be rewarded, and then compensated with different power, position, roles, rule, and privileges in heaven, the new earth. We will take those. He will come. God always rewards obedience and faithfulness, always. 
So the way you live your life now directly affects how you live in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be crowns that will be given to us at this Bema seat. I'm going to quickly work through these, and then we'll talk about the new heaven and the new earth. There are five crowns that I see in Scripture that are given to Christ followers, potentially. The first one is called the incorruptible crown. It's found in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Underline that in your Bible. Mark that in your, your mobile device. It's called the incorruptible crown. It goes to those that purge themselves from the inducements and pleasures of the world in order to be of profitable service to Jesus. It means we set aside greed. We set aside fleshly pleasure. We set aside pornography. We set aside anything that was of the flesh on a regular occurrence so that we could be used in a profitable way for Jesus Christ. He rewards us with the incorruptible crown. The next crown is found in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. It's called the victor's crown or the crown of life or a martyr's crown. It's for those who have suffered for Jesus yet endured with a sweet Christian spirit. Also those that have been faithful unto death as a witness for Christ. It's a person who stood in the face of persecution, potentially even died with a sweet spirit and didn't deny Jesus Christ. Do you trust Jesus Christ in the midst of persecution? Will you take a bullet in the head and those martyrs that said, I believe in Jesus Christ, they will be rewarded. I also believe that those that put up with persecution in schools, in the world that we live in, regularly because they have a vibrant faith and they, yet they do not deny the power of God and they have a sweet spirit even after persecution comes, they will be rewarded a victor's crown. Another crown that comes is called the crown of glory found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. It's given to a shepherd. It's called the shepherd's crown or the pastor's crown. It's for those that have given their lives to teaching the word of God. It's for faithful Sunday school or faithful small group teachers. It's for men and women who have led others and faithfully taught. It's for pastors who espouse the word week after week. It's for those who are teachers of the word in a faithful, biblical way. And so God runs the test. Did you stay true to God's word? More than just teaching, did you teach the way that he says you should teach and have a foundation of accuracy and inerrancy and let the Bible be the foundation? You receive a crown of glory. There's a crown of righteousness given to 2 Timothy from 2 Timothy 4.8 for those Christians inspired by the imminent return of Christ, which we've just went through and talked about. A person who has lived a very righteous life and longs for his appearing. People come to mind right away when I think of that, and you probably know people too, that are always thinking, come Lord Jesus, trumpet sound, the voice of an archangel, who long for the rapture of the church, who long for the second coming of Christ. When you're with them, they keep encouraging you with this words, like, hold on, Jesus promises to come. Hold on. And there is a crown in heaven reserved for those that only desire that. But scripture says, therefore, encourage each other with these words that regularly encourage others, those that long for his appearing. The fifth crown that I see in scripture is called the crown of rejoicing. First Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20. This is given to those that I would say would be a soul winner's crown. 
given to the person who has devoted their lives to evangelism, leading people to Jesus, who have gone out of their way to dark places to take the good news and the gospel of Christ. There are people who come to mind immediately for me for that too, who have a heart and a, 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 a love for lost people. And more than the love, they put their words in their hearts and their feet to action. So there are these five crowns that I see in scripture. Revelation chapter four and verse 10 is a picture of what we do with those. There were 24 elders bowing before the, our God. And it says they laid the crowns at his feet. So at this bimatos, this judgment seat of Christ, this, this opportunity for us to be judged for our good works, God tests us with a fire test. All that's left, whatever's left, he looks at. He rewards us. He says, you are deserving of this crown. And he takes these crowns and he gives them to us. So we have these crowns, not for our good, not for our glory, but for us to say, God, we did this for you. So we're rewarded. And then there's this picture in Revelation chapter 4, 10 that we get from the 24 elders. We take the crowns that have been given to us based upon how we've lived, and we lay them back at his feet, and we say, God, this is for you. In light of all that you've done for me and sent your son Jesus Christ to the cross, this is the least I could do for you. Question, what are you going to lay there? In that moment, when you're with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of the universe who has rescued you from the pit of hell, what are you going to lay before him? We are rewarded based upon the way we lived our lives. Remember, salvation cost us nothing. Following Jesus should cost us everything. And we don't have these to bring knowledge or glory to ourselves. It's our way of saying, Father, God, I loved you this much. Unbelievable moment that'll be for us. I think all of us, there will be a moment that we will wish that we had lived differently. Good news is this, you're still alive. You can still live out your faith. And from this day forward, you can continue to, to follow hard after him. People often ask me this question. And so I'm going to go through a litany of questions about the new heaven and the new earth. How will we worship God in heaven? People ask me that often. So, so Pastor Jim, how will we worship God in heaven then? Will, we, will, will it be continual, just bowing down before him? and that's where we spend the 24-7 of our lives? Is, is that what we do? Um, and if it was, that would be enough because <laughs> our God is worthy of worship. The answer to that question, by the way, is what your definition of worship is. So let me just personally ask you a question. If someone asks you this question, I'm asking you this, how do you worship God? How would you answer that? Is it a broad view or is it a narrow view? A narrow view says that all we'll do is sing before God. By the way, that's incredible. That's going to be awesome, 
It is awesome when you gather in worship to sing to God. And we'll have all the nations, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every race that's born again standing. But if that's what your view of worship is, well, that's the part on Sunday morning where Pastor Jeremiah and Pastor Jeremy lead us in songs and we worship God. If that's your view of worship, that's a very narrow view and that you have made assumptions about heaven based upon that. But if you have a broad view and you say that in everything you do, you worship God, then your view of worship is going to be a lot different. Because we were created to worship God, and it'll, it'll continue. I believe that worship covers every aspect of our lives. God has created us to worship him in everything we do. So if you're building cabinets, you're stapling them, you can be worshipful in doing that. I'm doing this for the glory of God. And everything I do, I'm trying to please him, Colossians 3.23. And so in everything we do, worship encompasses everything. It can encompass you writing a song, hiking a mountain, hitting a home run, cooking a meal, talking to an old friend. It can, it can happen when you're sowing and you're raising your children, being a godly husband or, or, or godly wife. It can happen in your running. It can happen in your driving. Now, wouldn't that be awesome if we worship God in driving? Imagine that, how that would just radically change this community. And I'm sure you always just worship God when you drive. Praise God for that slow car in front of me. <laughs> Praise God. God judges all those things. So your view of worship is shaped either broad or narrow based upon whether you believe you should worship God 24-7. I believe we should. So what will our bodies be like in heaven? In fact, someone asked me recently, will we have clothes in heaven? Will we be like, will we be naked in heaven? It's always an interesting question when someone asks you that. Um, I think it's pretty simple. I just go back to the Bible and, and I get a reference from the Bible and I look in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, Revelation 6 and 11. It says that the saints were dressed in robes and they were white. And it says when we go to the wedding supper of lamb and when we're coming back in the second coming, there will be fine linen wrapped around us. What would these bodies be like? Okay, I'm going to try to help you a second here. And this really helped me this week as I was putting these thoughts together. Go back before Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is when sin, when Adam and Eve sinned. Go back to Genesis 2 and Genesis 1. Now, picture Adam and Eve before the fall. Picture Adam and Eve before they sinned. Picture perfected bodies without sin in a perfect garden. Picture what it was like. I believe this to be true. I, I think Adam and Eve would have taken our breath away because they weren't cursed. They were before the fall of man. And I think it would be the most beautiful body that you have ever seen in heaven, in the new earth. I believe it'll be without the effects of sin, without the effects of curse. It'll be much like it was in the garden. When Adam saw, and I believe it's probably why he said it, and he saw a woman, he said, whoa, man. And that's how he came up with that term. He was blown away by her beauty. Jim Brown paraphrase, holy cow, okay. <laughs> but I believe it's something very beautiful. I believe our breath will be taken away what we will look like without the curse upon us. 
I also believe that we'll have different colors of skin and races. Look at Revelation chapter 5. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. I believe that there will be different tribes and, and nations and colors of people in heaven. Look at Revelation chapter 5. In verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every what? Tribe and what? And what? And what? There will be people from every tribe, per people, nation. I believe heaven, the new heaven and the new earth will have all different kinds of Christ followers. By the way, just a little sidebar. Have you ever wondered what God's voice is when we see him? Because we'll see his face. That's going to be awesome too. We'll be able to see his face and no man has been able to look at his face, but we'll be able to see his face. What do you think it'll be like when you go into heaven? You know, we have this picture of God from like, you know, uh, these, these people who have, who've acted out God and it's like, Oh, my name is God. Come in. I've said this before. What if you said, come on in? What if you had a southern accident? <laughs> Wouldn't that just blow you away? We don't know. That would just be awesome, though. Because my twang would just pick up and Ann would say, oh, please, God, stop, please. <laughs> Go to another accent. People have asked me this, will we rest in heaven? Well, turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Let's go back to God's original design before the fall. Will there be rest in heaven? Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. Let's look at before the fall of man. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the what he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he what? Rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he what? And from all the what? Of creating that he had done. I believe there will be rest in heaven. I also believe this, and I'm going to show you here in a few minutes, but let me just dig into a little bit. I believe as finite beings that we will tire. I believe that we will be limited in our ability to, to go, 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 go. I believe that because we're not all powerful, only God is. I believe that because we're not omniscient, all-knowing, because only God is. And so it takes energy to learn. It takes energy to work. I believe that because we're not omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent, and only he can be everywhere at once. So we have to walk from place to place. I don't believe that we will be like God and his attributes, because if we were, then we're saying we will be as God is. I believe that we'll have a finite ability in a perfected body like Adam and Eve did before the fall. And because of that, we need to rest from our work. In fact, Hebrews talks about the eternal rest and says, make every effort to enter that rest. There's a poor translation that's done in Revelation chapter 10 and verse 6, I think. I would say could have been a better translation in the King James. The King James says there will be time no longer. There's this sense where it, it, it'll stop. Yet the NIV says there will be no more delay. 
So I believe, like in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, when it gives a picture in 21 of heaven, talks about how wide and how square and the size of it and the circumference, and it talks about that it's gold and it talks about gates. I believe if we have to meet someone, we'll say, hey, I'll meet you at the west gate. I believe we'll have to travel there and walk there. And because of that, someone will be on the inside, we'll be on the outside. It takes effort to move from one place to another. I believe that we can tire. People have asked me this question. Will we sleep in the new heaven and the new earth? Now, the answer to that question will determine whether you believe in rest or whether you get tired. Some people argue that we won't sleep because we have perfect bodies. Well, do perfect bodies need food? Do we see where Jesus and his resurrected body ate? Do we hear and read about last or hear and heard last week about a wedding supper of lamb? Have you ever been to a wedding supper that you didn't eat? So, The same can be true about this. The same argument could be used for eating. Adam and Eve were created perfect. Did they sleep? I say they did. In fact, they had a day of rest. So I would say presumably so, we will sleep. I don't think sleep is an imperfection. Now, you could differ with me, and that's okay. I don't think that's an imperfection. What's more restful than a good night's rest? In all seriousness, think about it. What's more restful than you went to bed, your mind was finally shut down. You laid on that mattress that has your number, hits your lumbar just perfect, and you have that pillow that just fits your neck, and you get a good night's rest as opposed to tossing and turning and thinking and worrying. You won't worry in heaven. I think that a good night's rest will be a blessing and is one of life's greatest pleasures. Troubled sleep and restlessness are part of the curse. Psalms regards that God gives sleep to those that trust him and love him. Some people say there will not be fatigue. I say, why not? Like I just said, couldn't resources be depleted and renewed in a finite world, just like they were in Eden? Another question, will we work? Seriously, it's like, come on, Jim, like, You mean we got to go back to work? I spent my whole life trying to get to retirement. Now you're telling me I'm going to spend eternity working? That doesn't sound like a God-created kind of good thing. Work for the rest of my life? You see, the idea of working to you and to some could be a foreign concept for the new heaven and the new earth. But someone has to care for the earth, don't they? We just sit back and it just cares for itself. Adam's original job included work. Did you know that before he sinned? In fact, look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Adam's original work before the, or job before the fall included work. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Look what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what it? And to what it? He put him in the garden to work it, and to take care of it. By the way, God himself is a worker. Work wasn't part of the curse. Now, see, sometimes we, 
we, we think that work somehow is a curse. Now, it's all twisted up now because of sin. When you get ruled by an, an ungodly person who doesn't treat you well, when people cheat and you have to work harder than them, and, and when there's things in the workplace, listen, that's all fallen work. That's cursed work. A picture of work where there's no sin, where you're in unison together, creating something that's useful for this new heaven and new earth. That's what it's going to be like. In fact, God himself was a worker. Turn to John chapter 5. If, if you don't think we are going to work, what about God? Look what he does now. Look at John chapter 5 and verse 17. John 5 and verse 17. In defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his what? To this very day, And Jesus said, I too am what? You see, based upon how we've lived on planet earth, when we stand before him at the Bema seat, Bema Tas, judgment seat of Christ, we will be rewarded with crowns and compensated by the way we lived out our life on earth. And that compensation comes back into getting different position, different rule, different authority, and put in charge of more based upon how we used our talents. God takes that principle and puts us in charge of more on the new earth. We will continue to work in this new earth to take care of the earth. Another question that often comes, will there be homes in heaven? Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Jesus spoke to his disciples to comfort them. And he says this in John 14. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be what? You believe in God. Believe also in who? My father's house has many what? If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. My father's house has many rooms. This is my interpretation of that. You can differ with this and it's okay. When heaven, when God brings the new heaven down to the new earth, that's God's home. That's God's place. That's his singular. It says, my father has a place, singular, with many rooms. I believe, and it says in Revelation 21, that we will dwell with him. I believe that this is God's place, one big, large complex with many, 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 many little rooms. Little in the sense of they'll be incredible. Little in the sense of we don't understand what little means in in, in the new heaven and new earth. There is one place, it says, singular word, with many rooms. And so the King James translates that mansions. 
many, many, many little mansions. I believe the dwellings that we have will be with God in his place, and there will be many, many, many rooms there. People have asked me this question. Will there be marriage in heaven? Matthew chapter 22 answers that question in verses 28 to 20. There will not be marriage in heaven as we know it here, because we will be as the angels are, neither able to marry. And so the question is this. So if I'm married, will I live with Anne? Like, come on, God. I like, like, give me the penthouse with my wife and a perfected body in a perfected place. And I mean, I love my wife, 25 years. Imagine, God, wouldn't that be such a blessing to her? She could have me without any sin. Woo-hoo! She would say, amen, hallelujah. <laughs> or I could have her without any sin, which I think she's an incredible wife the way she is. And so I believe there's this picture of, of the question, will we remain together? That's what we're asking. And another question that's asked, well, what about my husband or wife that's passed? By the way, I'm sorry that that's happened to you. Can't imagine anything more painful than to lose your husband or wife. Honestly, can't. The only thing that matches that would be a child. I think you will recognize your husband and wife, and I think there will be incredible reunion in heaven. And I think, too, that those of us who are married, when we go to heaven, I will know Anne and she will know me. But listen to me. The Bible says that we are a bride and there's a groom and we're going to be married to him. And the relationship that we have with him will far outweigh any relationship that we've ever had on planet Earth in marriage. However, I believe that this relationship will continue with your spouse. And you will continue to love and you will pick up on conversations. But the same is true of every single other person that's on this new heaven and this new earth. I believe that the conversations and this way you love them will still be the same as the way you love them. I don't think you'll love anyone less or anybody more. Imagine a place where there's unity and love unconditional to everybody. That's the new heaven and the new earth. Can I get one amen for that, huh? <laughs> I think the same is with our children. I think we'll recognize them. I think we'll enjoy conversations with them. I think that we'll, 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 we'll recreate with them. We will spend time in loving them. But I think the same is true with everybody. Will all people be equal in, or in heaven? All people are equal in worth, but they differ in gifting and performance. I think that will continue. It seems illogical to assume that everyone in heaven will have equal skill. Here's what I mean. I don't think that when I get to heaven somehow that I'll be a vocalist and I'll be able to sing like right out front with with everybody. That's not my gifting. I believe the doctrine of continuity which means the things that you've done on earth will move on and have a perfected state in the new heaven and new earth. So I think those that are gifted in a variety of ways different than me will be in a perfected state in heaven. I believe that that God's not trying to create clones. He didn't do it on earth. Adam and Eve were different. Adam was much stronger than Eve. Eve was much more beautiful than Adam. And they had primary roles. Adam was to work the ground. He had a different gift and ability. And I think that same thing will happen in heaven. So I think when it comes to heaven, there will be people who can throw a baseball 
and those who can't throw a baseball as well. I think scripture is clear that there'll be different positions and skills and abilities in heaven, but all will be good. Will we recognize people? Seriously, do you think that there will be less able to do things in heaven than we're able to do on earth? Do you think we will be greater fools in heaven than we are on earth? Here's something really cool, sidebar. You'll be able to remember everyone's name. (laughs) Wouldn't that be awesome? Someone says, hey, my name's Bob (laughs) Piffernickel. Hey, there's Bob (laughs) Piffernickel. We will be perfect yet still finite. So will we continue to learn? That's a great question. By the way, the answer to that question in my mind is pretty simple logically. Only God himself is omniscient. You see, if we think that we're all-knowing, then what we're saying is that there will become a day when we will be like God. Listen, there is a faith that believes that. It's called Mormonism, that somehow you can get and be like God. Listen, that doesn't happen, Christ followers. There's only one God that's all-knowing, and he's the God that we serve. There aren't little gods that somehow we work our way up and become like the big God. You see, some people see heaven as a communal living place where we will always be with others and there will be no privacy. But that isn't what scripture shows. We have individual dwellings and we'll be able to learn. I believe Ephesians chapter two, verses six to seven really reveals that. The word show means to reveal the revelation to come. I believe that, that the scripture never teaches sameness in heaven and that mechanics will continue to be, learn how to be better mechanics and that somehow gardeners will learn how to become better gardeners. And I believe that, that those that are teachers will be learn how to become better teachers. I believe there'll be a constant state of learning and more learning because we're not omniscient but it won't be impacted by not being able to remember because of the curse. So I believe as we learn, when you bring a new book on, another one won't fall off. But you'll continue to be lifelong learners in heaven itself. I think it'll be great to discover new things. Like if you're in the city, in the center where the city seems to be, you'll work your way to the edges of the new earth and you'll discover new places. I also believe that there'll be new seasons. I also believe that snow could possibly exist on the new earth. And some of you want to curse right now because you hear that. But what's wrong with snow? I believe that it tells us that trees will bloom, that there will be seasons. And because of that, there's time cycles. I don't believe that time stops. It says that the trees will bloom, so it means sometimes they won't bloom. I believe that if you can work your way out to the new parts of the new earth, there will be different seasons. Some of us say, hey, there won't be any sun because the God himself will be there, and there won't be a need for light because he'll make the light. Listen, it says there will be no need for a sun, but it doesn't say there won't be a sun. I believe the sun and the moon and the stars will continue to be there. I could tell you a thousand other things, but let me close with this. This is one that's kind of fun. And this is for the guys and some girls. Will there be sports in heaven? In Jesus' name, amen, I say this. Do you think it's possible for sinless people to invent sports? Certainly. Sports aren't inherently evil or sinful in themselves. 
And some would say we couldn't have sports because competition brings out the worst in people. Well, I got good news for us. There won't be any worse to bring out in us. But in sports, someone would say someone has to lose. And in heaven, no one could lose, could they? Losing a game isn't evil or sinful. It's not part of the curse, but it's our response to losing that's part of the curse. To say that everyone would have to win in heaven underestimates the nature of the resurrected body of continually improving and learning and growing and getting better at our craft and our skill. So I think it's possible for us to have, imagine the golf courses in heaven. Holy cow. I bet we won't have to yell four, (laughs) but maybe we will until we get really good at it. All that to say this, there's going to come a day, Grace Community, for those of us who know Jesus Christ, when we get to meet the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the God that saved us, and we get to stand in his presence and worship him in song. And we get to finally say, I am home. Anybody looking forward to that day? God, we love you. We're grateful. We long for that day. We long for your appearing. We long for the trumpet sound. We long to be where we are meant to be, home. We're alien and strangers here. But there will come a day with this great plan that you perfected out, that you've laid out called eschatology. And we long and we look forward to the day when there's no evil, no sin, no no worry, no stress, just you and us and all the other Christ followers. And Satan is where he belongs in the pit of hell, burning in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. And we are face to face with the Lord Jesus of the universe. Oh, God, we look forward to that day. And may we live in such a way that reflects how grateful we are. And may we just reflect that as we worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.